I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, as most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 and at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mere Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, it's a sports-centric edition of Parallax Views as we delve into the intersection of sports and politics. Later on in the program, we'll be hearing from one of the foremost journalists who has been covering that topic for almost 20 years now, David Zirin, author of The Kaepernick Effect. Taking a knee, changing the world. But first, investigative journalist Kareem Zidane, whose work has been featured in such websites as The Guardian, Foreign Policy, and the MMA news media outlet Bloody Elbow, joins us to discuss the intersection of mixed martial arts, 
and politics from Chechnya's Ramzan Kedarov and his state-sponsored Akhmat Fight Club to UFC President Dana White's appearances on Fox News. Trust me when I say this is a fascinating conversation that goes in many different directions, including the story of a fighter nicknamed Patriot, who may well be one of, if not the most dangerous man in Russia. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now to our conversation with MMA journalist Karim Zidane. Welcome to Parallax Views. Karim Sadan, uh, MMA journalist who has written for all kinds of publications, including Bloody Elbow, The Guardian, and Foreign Policy, among others. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. And I, I wanted to have you on because your reporting on MMA sort of deals with the intersection between MMA and politics. And I'm not sure everyone has looked at that topic. So I'm curious, how did you become involved in reporting on MMA? Oh, with reporting on MMA, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Egypt. And when I moved to Canada to study at the University of Toronto, that's where I started meeting friends who are really into MMA. And I started watching videos and I thought, oh, you know, this is pretty cool. I grew up as a, as a wrestling fan. And I mean, like the professional wrestling WWE stuff so when I was a kid. And I thought, oh, you know, this, I guess, is more the adult version of this. It's pretty enjoyable. So that's pretty much how I got into MMA. Now, as for the intersection of MMA and politics, well, politics was and the intersection of politics and sport is not something that you can really avoid when you grow up in a place like Egypt or really in any authoritarian country uh, at all by any means. I mean, I grew up being a massive fan of football, and I guess that would be soccer in North America, but as a massive fan of football, and whenever you go attend a football match or you're in a stadium or something like that, it, you're bombarded with uh, the... The, the the sheer quantity of say police force and 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 states states violence that's involved even at a football match really so you're talking about the the, the Egyptian government was terrified of the youth and Egyptian football fans gathering in big groups and uh, supporting and supporting uh, their team so really they were afraid of the ultras they were afraid of all these various groups you'd see people and i mean me with my own eyes at the age of 13 and 12 i'd see you know fans being lifted out of their seats and being beaten by the police with batons and stuff so even from a very young age it was very hard to uh, separate the concept of sports and politics it was always integrated and i found that that applies on a world stage the only difference is that Quite honestly, a lot of people, especially in the West, have grown up with such privilege that they don't need to see something like that, or they are just not aware of the, the sheer intersection between politics and sports. Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually thought about politics and combat sports uh, prior to, to learning about your work, because I've noticed, I, I'll be honest, I'll make a confession here. I, too, <laughs> uh, grew up a fan of pro wrestling. I still watch it here and there. And yes, I, I know it's theatrical, but no, it's, it's fine. It's interesting to me because, um, and maybe I just haven't noticed the other side of it, but it seems like a lot of people in combat sports do lean towards 
maybe a right wing or, or Republican politics in the US, including the, the fighters. Um, I'm curious, do, do you think that's true or do you think I'm missing something? Uh, what, what do you think the appeal of combat sports is to maybe uh, a sort of masculine politics? I think we're still lacking enough actual, you know, statistical data to prove that point. But certainly I'd say the right wing and Republican audience and the conservative fan base happens to be the more vocal fan base. So when we're online, when we're on social media, that's the fan base that we're really taking notice of. But in my personal experience, in my personal experience growing up and, you know, traveling the world, what I have noticed is that there is a significant portion of the fan base that's also anti-fascist, you know, anti-racist, etc. They just don't happen to be as vocal. They might not be week-to-week viewers of the UFC. But I mean, I have met uh, anti-fascist gym owners in Greece, you know, and they might not be active on social media, but they definitely represent a portion of the fan base as well. As to which one is more prevalent at the moment i'd have to say especially you know and especially with the age of trump and and his years in office it really made it very clear that the ufc has built a significant uh, right-wing following and uh, that remains to be the case now we've seen this continue to be the case with more and more republican politicians i mean just a few weeks ago we had ted cruz senator ted cruz taking a picture with you know ufc legend chuck liddell We've had uh, Governor Ron DeSantis hosting MMA events and showing up at the at the UFC press conference before a UFC event in Florida. And he used that as a platform to reopen Florida uh, amidst the global pandemic. And uh, we've seen now, you know, the UFC president Dana White appear on Fox on Fox on TV shows like uh, Tucker Carlson's TV show. He's appeared on Sean Hannity's show as well, talking and they've promoted the UFC as this sort of anti-woke sport as sort of contrasting to the NFL and the NBA, where we're seeing more examples of social justice being being presented on screen to people. So really, we're seeing the Republican community and the conservative audience uh, migrating towards the UFC because they view it as sort of a traditional outlet for sports that does not integrate politics. Now, that is absolutely untrue. The truth of that is that it just integrates the politics that they are comfortable with themselves. So it might not necessarily be promoting, you know, Black Lives Matter, but they're more than happy if it means that they're promoting the, you know, President Donald Trump, for instance. So I think there's a there's there's a lot to dissect and to uncover when it comes to that. But for the most part, I really believe that they are attracted to what they believe is an anti-woke sport. And I think the hyper-masculinity involved in mixed martial arts is something that's also appealing to a conservative audience. And I, I was going to add to that, too. It wasn't always necessarily that way. I mean, I recall when, you know, John McCain was hugely anti-UFC <laughs> so much as I think he, he said it was he essentially called it human cockfighting and said it should be outlawed. Uh, so it hasn't always been as appealing to elements of the right. Correct. Absolutely. But then again, I'd say that that's absolutely very true. But it goes to show you that even John McCain has, in a sense, I mean, he's passed now, but I mean, his brand of Republican politics isn't even what is prevalent in, uh, in, in, the, in the right wing today. So it goes to show you not just how much the perception of the UFC amongst the right has changed, but also just how much the actual right wing has shifted in the United States. So there again, that's a lot, there's a lot to talk about there and there's a lot to look at, but the UFC has gone from, you know, this, uh, 
entity that was considered way too violent to be on TV and not friendly enough for audiences and way too dangerous. And as you just mentioned, human cockfighting, that's exactly the term that John McCain used back in the 90s to now becoming the sport where uh, Republican politicians feel very comfortable uh, being promoted alongside because they believe it will it will help them reach a younger audience. The UFC still has control of, say, the 18 to 35 demographic, which is a key demographic that a, a lot of politicians are trying to angle towards. So it, it, it tends to make sense right now. The UFC has also changed a lot in the last 20 something years. It's gone from a sport that has very little uh, that had very little regulation that was not sanctioned by a lot of states in the United States. Hell, I think at one point it was banned in up to 47 states. Now it is considered to be one of the fastest growing sports in the world. I mean, it might have plateaued a bit in the last couple of years, but with stars like, you know, Ronda Rousey at one point and Conor McGregor, the sports really uh, skyrocketed over the past few years. It's interesting too, because you said uh, there is a politics that shows up in MMA. And I think it's true in all sports. Um, mm -hmm. David Zarin, of course, has talked about this and, and he is, he actually recommended you to me, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because um, just a few weeks ago, I, I was in a hotel on a trip to DC and my brother had turned on an MMA fight. And it was interesting to me because there was a, a Ukrainian fighter and I think it was mm -hmm. a Russian fighter, uh, but you could tell people were sort of inserting politics into it. People were cheering uh, for the Ukrainian fighter. So there, there is a, a sort of politics that's always at play in a lot of these events. Oh, no doubt. And I mean, it's becoming a lot more prevalent. I mean, you have fighters like former UFC interim welterweight champion Colby Covington really taking on this shtick and gimmick that he's this MAGA representative. So for the last few years, you know, he's been coming out to UFC events wearing, you know, the MAGA, the MAGA red caps. And he took pictures with Donald Trump in the Oval Office at one point with his UFC title there. And whenever he is up against a fighter that he views as, you know, liberal or a Democrat or something along those lines, he uses his shtick to sort of sell the fight as well. At one point, he was fighting a, uh, a welterweight champion by the name of Tyrone Woodley. And Tyrone Woodley is, uh, is uh, not only one of the UFC's few black champions at the time, but he was also a significant activist with regards to Black Lives Matter. So during the press conference, Colby Covington just went out of his way to target Black Lives Matter, calling them terrorists, etc. And this was all allowed on the UFC broadcast. And it's been extremely disappointing to see the UFC consider this just as part of their free speech absolutism concept. But at the end of the day, he is using politics and current, you know, polarizing and tense subjects to promote his fight against another fighter and singling out that fighter as because he's a Black Lives Matter activist as a terrorist is really disturbing behavior. Yet it got very little coverage overall. And you know, very few people have seemed concerned by that. And Colby Covington himself is quite polarizing. Depending on where he's fighting, he'll get either a lot of cheers or a lot of boos. But at the same time, he's had Candace Owens come and attend his fight. He's even had, you know, Donald Trump and Donald Trump's family, Donald Trump Jr. and multiple other people have come and attended Colby Covington's fights because they see him as, you know, okay, we've got this representative in the UFC. We might as well throw our backing and support behind him. So, yes, you're absolutely seeing more examples of politics in, in, in mixed martial arts, especially in the UFC octagon. Another example was uh, was uh, at one point there was a fight between Rose Namajunas and uh, 
uh, Zhang Weili, the, the, the UFC uh, champion at the time from China. And I remember Rose Nama Yunus was promoting this fight by saying things like, you know, better, better dead than red. This sort of this anti-communist concepts as if she's she's labeling this one fighter because this fighter represents China as this fighter must be communist and represents all the worst things of communism. And that became the angle that she sold this fight. At the end of the day, it really reminded me of a lot of old pro wrestling narratives like Sergeant Slaughter, you know, becoming like an Iraq supporter during the Iraq war. As in, I, I was going to say not to interrupt you, but it, it's funny. I remember when I, I first saw Conor McGregor cutting sort of like promos. He was cutting wrestling mm -hmm. promos while in the UFC. I yep. mean, they, there was a similarity between, you know, the old wrestling promos, people like Ric Flair and what Conor McGregor was doing. So I always saw parallels between the two. Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I, there's no doubt that there are clear parallels there and that they're clearly taking advantage of that in the UFC now. But I never thought we'd see it at on, on, on this level, this consistently. You know what I mean? I mean, I thought, you know, for the marks and for the people who, you know, are, are fans and well aware of both sports, you might catch on to stuff like that, like the promos. But the way that they're now promoting these fights with these political elements and making it seem like it's an us versus them mentality is is, is very much taking from the old wrestling uh, style of promoting these old these old matches back in the day. Especially the sort of ethnic tension sort of angles that they play with. Oh, yes, yes. No, absolutely. I, I find it to be quite concerning, honestly, because uh, if the UFC does not attempt to at least regulate this in some way, shape or form or, you know, draw a line somewhere, it's only going to get worse. Now, I want to get into the time you spent in Eastern Europe and also reporting on uh, Katarov. But first, um, we've talked about UFC. There are other MMA promotions, though, right, like uh, Bellator and, and whatnot. And there's some that aren't even around anymore. I've been sort of out of uh, MMA world for a long time. I remember when there was things like Pride FC and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Are any of those operating differently than UFC? Maybe not trying to appeal to the sort of MAGA crowd in the way that Dana White has? Yes, no, I, I'd say, I mean, I, I, I'll admit right now that I don't tend to watch all events anymore. I simply don't have time for things like that, uh, especially with the type of reporting that I'm doing. But from my experience, I don't think that the other organizations such as Bellator and the Professional Fight League, the PFL, etc., or even, you know, one, uh, one, one FC in, uh, in, uh, in, in Asia, I don't think any of those are actually attempting to uh, seek out these political uh, divisions as a form of promotion. Not that I've been aware of, at, at least so far. There's been a lot less of that. Those operate simply as sports leagues, as far as I'm concerned, with the obvious, you know, uh, occasional transgressions, I find, like I think uh, uh, Bellator has promoted fighters, unfortunately, who've had white supremacist ties in the past, but they've immediately cut ties with those fighters. I mean, these are things that, you know, unfortunately happen in all sorts of organizations, then they've, they've been able to handle it. But the UFC, there's a clear pattern here. There's a clear pattern showing that, I mean, when you have your own UFC president, uh, going on television shows like and on stations such as Fox News to promote the UFC as sort of the antithesis to the NFL. Well, then, you know, he's taking advantage of sort of the, the political status and the political state in the United States to help promote his own organization. And I've written about this consistently. So if anyone wants to do further reading on this, I mean, a Google search will certainly lead you to 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 what you're looking for in this case, including all the videos with Dana White on these different shows. They're right there on YouTube. So with regards to Eastern Europe and MMA, how did you start covering that topic? And I believe you've actually spent time in Eastern Europe uh, with different fighters, right? 
We, I've, I've spent, I actually, between 2014 and 2017, I must have made about 13, 14 trips to Russia and various other, you know, post-Soviet states. And uh, it was a fascinating time. It definitely helped develop my understanding of, of mixed martial arts and furthered my knowledge of the of sports and politics and division. So it really started around in 2014, I had started working for Bloody Elbow. And one of the groups, one of the, the organizations I was interested in was a mixed martial arts organization based in Russia called M1 Global. And M1 Global was the original, you know, Russian organization. It was the first of its kind in Russia, started in the 90s, you know, six years after the UFC had started, that organization started in, uh, in Russia. And uh, I was interested in interviewing its its owner because its owner also happened to be the manager for Fedor Emelianenko, who was a legendary fighter at the time. And during the interview, there was a translator translating from Russian to English as while I was talking. So she looked at me at one point and was like, uh, you know, Vadim, who's the, who's the owner of this organization, really likes your voice and would like to invite you to come do English commentary for us in Russia for these events. And I was young in my job at this point. I had just started writing for Bloody Elbow. I must have been, you know, 22, 23 at this point in 2014. And uh, I thought, you know, why not? This is an opportunity for me to travel, to, to see a different side of the world and not necessarily have to be a journalist. I'm going to take up, I'm going to take them on this, on this opportunity. And I started going to places like St. Petersburg, to Sochi, to Orenburg. I got a trip to, you know, Georgia and Azerbaijan, Ingushetia and the North Caucasus. I mean, I went all over Russia over those three years, spent a lot of significant time there and uncovered quite a few stories. I mean, I interviewed fighters who were parts of, you know, MMA cults in, in Latvia. I interviewed fighters who were affiliated with, you know, old gangs back in the day. I interviewed the coach of a fighter who who used to compete in the UFC, who ended up becoming, who was accused of becoming a hitman for the mafia in Russia at one point and ended up being jailed and then died of cancer while in prison. So, I mean, I covered some really bizarre and strange stories while I was there. But of course, the most significant one that I ended up uncovering was the story of the Chechen warlord, Ramzan Kadyrov. And it was during one of the events where I was doing commentary you know i'm sitting there and i think this was in it was either in moscow or in st petersburg but i'm going to say it was probably in moscow when this happened in 2015 and i'm sitting doing my commentary and you know it's a rowdy event you know most of these russian mma events were really quite rowdy and i'm sitting i'm doing my commentary and you know there's a fight happening in the ring and i didn't i just suddenly hear the crowd especially closer to the front few rows go quiet and as they're going quiet, there's a few of these, you know, bearded, large, muscular people walking across to the front and sitting down sort of in the front row, looking into the ring. And I turned to my partner, you know, I put the, I put the, the mic on mute during the break. I, and I turned to my partner then. I'm like, who, what's going on here? And he looks at me. He's like, you don't know who those people are? I'm like, who are they? He's like, that's, those are the, you know, the henchmen of the Chechen warlord, Ramzan Kadyrov. These are some of the most dangerous people in Russia. And I thought to myself, what are they doing in, at an MMA event? And, you know, that really just kick-started what ended up becoming seven years of investigative reporting on Ramzan Kadyrov and how he uses combat sports, particularly mixed martial arts, to further his sociopolitical agenda. Let's dive into that a bit more because you've, as you said, reported on that in depth. And there's some really wild characters that figure into uh, the story of, of Chechnya and MMA, including... I, I don't remember his actual name, but a guy who uses this sort of um, nickname, Patriot, yes. right? Abuzayed Vismoradov. <laughs> so 
I, I, I'd like to start, if we're going to get into Abu Zaid Bismarodov, I'd like to first sort of lay out sort of a, a, a brief introduction for your audience. So really, with, when it comes to Ramzan Kadyrov, Chechnya is this republic in the North Caucasus that was occupied by Russia first during the uh, Russian Empire around 18, 1859 and has attempted multiple times to gain its independence. And that, those attempts to gain independence led to two civil wars with Russia in the 1990s. And uh, very, very brutal wars that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of, of Chechens at the time. And what emerged after the Second Chechen War, which Putin won, when he absolutely annihilated Chechnya, very similar to what he's doing right now in Ukraine, in places like Mariupol and Ukraine. Uh, after that, he ended up installing the, uh, a man named Ahmed Kedirov in charge of Chechnya. And Ahmed Kedirov was Kedirov's father, like the Ramzan Kedirov that we know now. That was his father. But Ahmed Kedirov was assassinated in 2004 when a bomb was placed under his seat at, uh, at a football match, event of all things. So, I mean, again, the correlation between sports and politics is even right there. He was blown up at a stadium. <laughs> at, at, at the famous stadium in Grozny. But then Ramzan Kedirov sort of ascended to power in 2007. And since he did, he's, he's really branded himself as this patron of sports. You know, his passion for sports ranges from, you know, a love of equestrian to soccer to combat sports like MMA and boxing. But really the, the primary focus over the past few years has been, you know, mixed martial arts, which he's used really to promote this idealized interpretation of masculinity, right? Like he's popularized it in Chechnya. He's elevated these Chechen fighters to elite social statuses. He's created even, you know, structured facilities and gyms and propagated the idea that, you know, proficiency in combat sports is part of Chechen manhood. So really he's done what I refer to as sports socialization. So it really is a, a fascinating and insidious blueprint for how to sort of uh, brainwash an entire nation that has been traumatized by war. And that's really what he's used mixed martial arts for. Real quick, if I could, do you think this can also be related to... So when I, I think a lot of people will look at those pictures of Vladimir Putin where he's shirtless on, mm -hmm. on horseback and whatnot. I think all of this does serve a sort of agenda in the sense of they're all trying to portray an image of this is what masculinity is, and masculinity is associated with, uh, you know, I, I think in a way, violence. Absolutely. Like, I, th first of all, Kedirov has always, ever since rising to power, he's wanted to emulate Putin. And the best way he could emulate Putin was to follow in this path of creating this cult of personality, which is what Putin has been very good at. Putin has spent years promoting himself as this masculine figure. I mean, his love of martial arts is well known. This is a man who actually created instructional videos for his ju for judo. Like you can buy and he has a whole book, right? He has I, a whole, I think book, he wrote as a whole well. book about judo. Yeah, exactly. So he's this is and you know you, there are plenty of pictures of him. You know, you know, hip tossing other you know judo athletes and wearing his judo black belt. He's been given an honorary black belt in taekwondo, and of course, all the famous pictures of him. You know, shirtless on horseback or you know diving deep into the water. All these different things they serve a purpose. I and mean, we we look at it here, and you know, in the West, people look at it and they think it's very ridiculous. But I've actually spoken to people in Russia. Some people people do find it ridiculous but others have said you know this is a way for him to tell his country that your leader is healthy your leader is in good shape and your leader is stronger and more powerful than all these other you know leaders that you'll find in these other countries who are just sitting down and doing absolutely nothing you know especially if you try and compare you know a putin to a donald trump for instance 
the the contrast was significant at the time, and I think Russians took that into consideration. Now, Kadyrov took that and just multiplied it and exaggerated it tenfold, really. He saw that and was like, you know, I'm not going to do the topless photos, but I am going to present Chechnya as, as, this, as this republic full of military might and full of strong Chechen youths that are ready to fight for Russia and fight for Putin. So that's what he really did. And he founded this Ahmed MMA fight club. And, and this is played, a state-run fight club, essentially. Absolutely. This is absolutely state-run from the from the government budget. He funds everything in this fight club, really. It's sponsored by Kadyrov himself. And you know, if you if you sign with this fight club, you're paid monthly stipends that cover, you know, your medical expenses, your training costs, your travel fees, all of that. And if you if you achieve a certain level of success, you know, if you're if you're a fighter and you end up fighting abroad at one of these organizations, especially like the UFC, for instance, and the UFC does have several of Kadyrov's fighters currently uh, on their roster, he ends up gifting you, Kadyrov ends up gifting you things like expensive cars, you know, new homes, and you become these guests of honor. So again, this idea of elevating them to the elite status in Chechen society so that other people look at them and say, that's what I want to be. I want to be a celebrity like him. I want Ramzan Kadyrov to come and shake my hand and to sit next to me at a banquet and talk about how great I am. He's, this is exactly sort of the, the, the brainwashing he's been able to achieve here. And he's placed this man that we've just mentioned, Patriot, Abu Zayed Vismuradov, in charge of the Ahmed MMA Fight Club. Now, Abu Zayed Vismuradov, it is no exaggeration when I say he is truly one of the most dangerous figures in all of Russia, not just in Chechnya, but in all of Russia. Why? He was, first of all, he grew up with Kadyrov. This is a man who's from the same village as Kadyrov. There are pictures of them as, you know, little children hanging out together. So this is one of Kadyrov's, if he has friends, this is the closest he has to a friend, basically, someone he actually trusts. This is a man who fought alongside Kadyrov in both Chechen wars. So they have a lot of history together. And then he became in charge of Kadyrov's SWAT team. He's in charge of this unit called the Kadyrovsi, which is a private militia that Kadyrov operates in Chechnya, completely outside of the control of Russia. And he's also in charge of Kadyrov's personal uh, security unit, the bodyguards that look after Ramzan Kadyrov and that are always surrounding him. So really, he has this trifecta of military power in, in Chechnya that makes him sort of uh, unstoppable, at least there. And I have heard some really horrific things about what he's done in terms of his the the the, the lengths he's willing to go to torture people, etc. I mean, this is a man who was sanctioned by the United States for and because for implications that he was involved in the abduction and torturing of uh, of of LGBTQ plus people in Chechnya which is something that has been happening, this purge of gay people in Chechnya that's been happening for several years. Well, this man, who also happens to run the fight club, was one of the people in charge of that. So the idea that sports and politics can ever be separated, it's not possible when you literally place one of the most dangerous military figures you have in charge of the fight club, where all these professional athletes are emerging only to go compete in the UFC. So I, the, I think the way you put it in another interview was that... Uh... You know, if you got a call from Patriot, you should be very scared. <laughs> Absolutely. No, this is this is very, very true. You know, it's funny. I don't even remember saying that line, but it does sound like something I would say, because that was really what I was told in uh, in Russia is, is, is Patriot is a terrifying human being. This is a person you don't want to get on his bad side, etc. And it's true. He was even. But what shocks me is that this did not, the UFC never batted an eye when it came to something like this. There are pictures of, first of all, Patriot has attended multiple UFC events. So the UFC, whenever it's in Moscow, 
he attends he attends those events. When the UFC uh, held an event in Rotterdam, I think it was in 2017 or 2018 when they went to Rotterdam in uh, in the Netherlands, there was a fighter called Ad Karim Edelov, who is also a relative of Kadyrov. He's also now the vice premier of Chechnya. So we're talking about now another leading politician in Chechnya. He used to fight for the UFC and he made his debut at that event. And Kadyrov's whole entourage attended that show. They just landed in the Netherlands and went and attended the show. Abu Zayed Vismarad of Patriot also has a picture taken with Sean Shelby, who's the UFC matchmaker. Like the connection between the UFC and this entity, this, this group of really horrific, sadistic human beings extends beyond simply, you know, a misunderstanding here or there, or they signed one fighter by mistake. They still consistently promote uh, Kadyrov's fighters. I mean, this weekend, or you know, I, let's just say at UFC 2, 273, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov's favorite fighter, Hamza Chimaev, is about to compete in the co-main event of, of, of this UFC card. And he's doing this on American soil. And then two weeks ago, they had another UFC fighter from, uh, from Kadyrov's own team who was competing there, Magomed Ankalaev. They're going to have another one in a few more weeks in May. Uh, his name is Maxim Grishin. He's also going to be competing on the card. So the UFC is well aware of this, yet they show not even the slightest concern about this. That level of incompetence, that level of immorality is something that bothers me very significantly, as you can tell from just the way I'm speaking about this right now. So I, I wanted to ask you about a, a few specific fighters from Russia, and one of them I don't think I had uh, sent you notes on or that I wanted to talk about, but mm -hmm. I, I thought of him recently, and he's sort of confused me because I think he's very pro-Putin, but he describes himself as like an anarcho-communist, uh, this figure of Jeff Monson. What, what is the deal with Jeff Monson? Oh, so Jeff Monson Monson's actually American. So he's an, he's, he, he's an American fighter who once upon a time fought for the UFC. He's what you consider a MMA journeyman. He's had a very lengthy career in mixed martial arts and for the most part, a very respectable career. But, but, yes, but he, he did, did get, he got Russian citizenship. That's yes. what I meant. Okay, go, go sorry, on. No. I'm sorry. And I'm about, I'm about to get to this, actually. So, yes, he has long promoted himself as an anarcho-communist, whatever that, that, that tends to mean in uh, for his understanding. But, yes, he's had communist tendencies, let's say, and that's made him quite unpopular in the United States. Of course, the United States is well known for its distaste in, uh, in communism. So Jeff Munson, in that sense, through his political views, was never that popular in the U.S., but he's also been very pro-Russia over the years. And once he started seeing that Putin was handing citizenship to other athletes, such as Roy Jones Jr., for instance, the legendary boxer. He got Russian citizenship from Vladimir Putin just by asking. He asked Putin, he's like, listen, I love Russia and I'd love to come live here. And Putin's like, great, here's, here's a passport. That's sports diplomacy right there in action, right? That's, that's Putin being like, look, I am capable of actually taking these American athletes and turning them Russian. So Jeff Munson was another one of those was another one of those fighters. He promised Putin that he would live in Russia, that he was going to enter politics and that he was going to be a useful asset to Russia. Putin took him on his word and, they, and he gave him a Russian passport. And since then, Jeff Munson initially wanted to join the Communist Party. He did not join the United Russia Party, which is the dominant party in Russia, the party that technically Putin represents in Russia. But I'd have to say that since the, the war in Ukraine and Russia's, Russia's brutality in Ukraine, he has come out with some significant propaganda. You know, it's really disappointing to see, uh, to be honest with you. I, not to interrupt you, but I, I remember 
God, this had to have been in like 2008 when he was he, he was like there's a famous picture of him where he's squaring off with the uh, police. I think the riot police at the Republican National Convention. Yes. So this is kind of, this is really disappointing to me. Thank you. Exactly. I mean, this is somebody whose intentions were very good. He 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 stood for some important political uh uh, talking points, really, and ideologies. And I'm not necessarily talking about the communism here, but I'm talking about his willingness to stand in, a, in opposition to sort of conservative values in the United States, etc. His his stances on, for instance, you know, Israel and Palestine were were fascinating as well, and something you don't often hear from a fighter. But he has now taken this one step too far when he says things like, "Well, we're not really 100% sure who's committing the atrocities in Ukraine," for instance. Like he's really just pushing Russian propaganda narratives right now. And that's, again, this is exactly why Putin does these things. This is why he hands Russian citizenships to these people, because he feels like they will be indebted to him. And then he'll be able to take advantage of them and use them as the puppets that they've become. And this is a great example of that. So I'm very happy you actually mentioned uh, Jeff Munson, because it's a relative, irrelevant uh, topic of conversation right now. And also, I wanted to talk about, um, there were two others uh, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, the, the first I'm, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I know him and Conor McGregor had a lot of issues ah, with each other. Uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about him and his ties to Katarov? So Khabib Nurmagomedov is uh, probably, and I think I can say this without exaggeration, easily the one of the most popular Muslim athletes on the planet. He's a Dagestani native, and Dagestan is the republic that that borders with Chechnya. It's one of the uh, one of the republics in the North Caucasus region of Russia, and borders with Chechnya. So he's not from the same place or the same ethnicity as uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. But the ties between uh, Dagestan and Chechnya, places that have been very tense historically, are are quite clear in this case. And he's and as 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 uh, Habib has grown more significant in the sport. I mean, kid. Let's say five, six years ago, Khabib Nurmagomedov was not a name of any of any significance, really, despite the fact that he had this undefeated streak and he had entered the UFC. It was really only once he uh, became once he fought Conor McGregor and went on to become UFC champion, etc., that really his stardom took off and he became one of the most popular athletes on the planet, particularly of, of Muslim origins and of Muslim background. It, this so is a that, guy, too, by the way, that. I think Conor McGregor attacked him on a bus or something, right? Or Yes, Conor McGregor was, the way Conor McGregor went about promoting the fight was pretty disgusting, in my opinion. I mean, there was a whole sort of, again, very pro wrestling style here of, you know, chased him with this, like, I don't know, uh, dolly that he ended up throwing at the bus at a UFC press conference, tried to scare everybody on the bus, including Khabib, which, I mean, it didn't work scaring Khabib. If anything, he only rallied more people to support Khabib Nurmagomedov made up in the fight. Conor McGregor also made significant Islamophobic comments during the time. I mean, at the press conference, he kept trying to give Khabib uh, a, a cup of whiskey, a glass of whiskey, like Khabib, uh, uh, McGregor's own branded whiskey to drink. And Khabib is a very, uh, you know, religious man who doesn't drink at all. And I thought that sort of behavior was just extremely inappropriate and did Conor McGregor no favors, especially since there were significant talking points that could be made with regards to Khabib Nurmagomedov that were completely overlooked there, such as the the fact that he does maintain ties with Ramzan Kadyrov. Ever since Khabib has risen to uh, to stardom, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov could not help himself. He immediately wanted to rub shoulders, uh, like with uh, with with Khabib, because that helps make 
Ramzan Kadyrov look better. Kadyrov has always done things like, you know, inviting stars like Floyd Mayweather, Mike Tyson, Steven Seagal, Hillary Swank even, you know, right after the Million Dollar Baby movie. And at least, you know, 20 UFC athletes over the past you know few years. He does this really to distract from his own human rights abuses and to show his own people that he's a prominent world leader. You know, if he can attract these celebrities to come and hang out with him, then it tells his own people that, you know, we're no longer this tiny republic that Russia bombarded once upon a time that nobody knows how to spell our name. Now we have, you know, some of the most famous American stars coming and spending time with our leader. You know, it makes Kadyrov look good, basically. And Khabib was one of those people, you know, it, I cannot overstate how important it is to Kadyrov that he wanted to associate himself with one of the most popular Muslim athletes on the planet. And that's what he did with Khabib Nurmagomedov. Khabib Nurmagomedov, some people will argue that Khabib had no choice but to meet with uh, Kadyrov. And I, at the end of the day, I think that's irrelevant to the conversation. At the end of the day, what we're talking about here is the power of sports washing and the and, and what Kadyrov, the extent Kadyrov will go to utilize fighters such as Khabib and others like Hamza Chimaev that I had mentioned earlier for his own political gain and his own political purposes. And that's what he's been doing. If people are unfamiliar with that term, uh, sports washing, what's, what's the exact definition that you could give of it? So sports washing is a term coined by Amnesty International around 2015, and it's used to describe for the most part, authoritarian regimes, though it can also apply to democratic ones on occasion, using sports to manipulate international perception and to cleanse their human rights atrocities, really. So it's whitewashing of human rights abuses to an extent. Uh, the term is new, sure, but the process is not, right? Like, I mean, you can look, go as far back and I'll use this, use this example since I am Egyptian. I'll use this example and say the ancient Egyptians once upon a time used to stage wrestling matches against neighboring Nubia to showcase Pharaoh's superiority. So they'd have Pharaoh sitting alongside the leader of, of Nubia. And once his athlete would win, it would show his people that the Egyptians were superior. And this is sports washing. Another very famous example would be the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin which were hosted by Hitler's Nazi party in an attempt to emphasize the superiority of the Aryan race. These are traditional examples of sports washing. Also, since we had mentioned Conor McGregor and, and his sort of feud with uh, Habib, uh, it's interesting because one of them is associated with Katarov, but I think Conor has, uh, he cozied up a bit to Putin, right? Yes, he did. I at the start of of uh, of uh, the, the the most recent war, the war with Ukraine, right? Russia's war with Ukraine. I actually posted the picture from the 2018 World Cup final, where where Conor McGregor had his like just went up, took a took a picture with Putin, wrapped his arm around Putin's you know shoulders, and uh, and has this bizarre picture with Putin where they're both smiling into the camera. But what was really significant here, because if it was just a picture, we'll say fine, it's just a picture. But what Connor ended up captioning the picture when he posted it online, he said, this is one of the greatest leaders of our time. So really, he was showing support and legitimizing Putin further. Again, yet another example of sports washing. I mean, this is great publicity for Putin, who now has, you know, Conor McGregor's legions of fans 
who are extremely gullible. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the significance of sports washing, which is the fact that sports fans are extremely gullible and easy to, to brainwash with things like this, that they're very likely, if they love Conor McGregor and they respect him and they see them as they see him as a role model, well, they'll take things like this at face value. If, if Conor says that Putin is a great world leader, well, then who are they to say he isn't? And that's exactly what Putin is hoping to always achieve when he when he associates himself with with uh, athletes of this stature. And unfortunately, that's what Conor McGregor did there. He helped promote Putin. And I mean, people can say, well, Putin hadn't become, you know, a war criminal yet. And I'll say that's complete, utter nonsense, because this is not the first war that Putin has participated in. As a matter of fact, he has now led wars and atrocities in places like Chechnya in 1999 and 2000. He's done the same in 2008 in Georgia. And once again, in 2015 and 2016 in Syria, where he carpet bombed Aleppo, among other places. He has been a war criminal for 20 years. Yet, what Conor McGregor decided to do was, you know, wrap his arm around this man and say he's a great world leader. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I first sort of got into uh, Conor McGregor because of his, the match he had with uh, Floyd Mayweather. And one mm-hmm. thing that really stood out to me uh, in the lead up to that match was, I mean, I think a lot of people gloss over this. But there was sort of a a racial thing going on there, Mm -hmm. especially with fans of Conor McGregor. I I think it was it was the great white hope all over again. Unfortunately, uh, there was that element. I think at one point he had called Floyd Mayweather boy as well. And really, uh, for those who aren't aware, that is definitely a racial uh, a racial term. And that's not uh, extremely derogatory, especially if used if used on on black people or African-American people. Uh, it's a term that has been used on them before in the past. This is just not language that should be okay. And I, of course, I believe at the time he feigned ignorance and a lot of his fans, of course, you know, the, the standard apology is saying, oh, he didn't mean it that way. He just meant, you know, Floyd is much shorter than him. So he was calling him a child. And, you know, th- that's the thing though, right? That's the thing. When you have these legions of, sp- of fans, they are always going to protect you. So when you're able to utilize them in propaganda, et cetera, it, it, it's extremely significant and powerful. Right. Because not only will they defend the athlete, but on occasion, they'll also defend the politician involved in this in this sort of thing. And that might not have been the case in the Floyd uh, Connor stuff, but it's the same case in the Connor and the Vladimir Putin stuff, really. So, yes, there's absolutely a racial element there. And we've seen Connor McGregor is not a good person or at least his identity that he has portrayed for people. He might be a good person at home. I don't know. I don't know this person personally, but his record speaks for himself. This is a man who's been arrested on numerous occasions. He has even had sexual assault allegations levied against him. This is a man with with a history of a violence, for one thing, a history of horrible statements, both homophobic, you know, misogynistic, and clearly racist ones as well. No, I I was curious because... I've seen a few news stories about fighters that have gotten into domestic situations. I think the the one that I recall when I was, you know, going to college was this fighter, and I don't know his real name, but he used the name War Machine. Ah, uh, yes. Are there a lot of, is this more common than we'd like to think within MMA, sort of this kind of abusive behavior? Or, because I don't want to, I don't want to draw a picture that, oh, this is like a, you know, all UFC fighters or all MMA fighters are like that, but you see some of these stories and it makes you wonder. We have seen this sort of behavior in, in, in a lot of the sports where where masculinity and particularly toxic or hyper masculinity is 
not just promoted or it is encouraged. You know what I mean? So I won't say that this is just an MMA problem. This is an MMA problem. It's a boxing problem. And hell, it's an NFL football problem. You know what I mean? Because we've had examples of domestic abuse in all those in all those sports, really. And of course, there are there's going to be domestic assault cases in all of in a wide range of sports. But really, we have seen some sort of trend in these sports. We have seen it in, in the NFL. We've seen it with mixed martial arts. And I believe there's been documentaries done on this. I think HBO Real Sports had done had done a segment on on that specifically. So there have been arguments that you know brain damage is involved in this and CTE can be can be uh, can be correlated something like that. I think that unless it can be proven, I think that you're giving uh, you're you're making excuses for fighters who have just been taught their whole lives that they can use their violence and their masculinity to get away with anything that they want, and that's how they've been taught to handle everything. If you're taught to handle things by fighting, well, then unfortunately, sometimes you're going to take that out on your spouse. It's disgusting behavior that should not be accepted, no matter what. And the added problem I find is that they they continue to have spaces for them to compete afterwards. Like the UFC ended up signing Greg Hardy, who had been accused of domestic assault as well in, while in the NFL. The NFL gets rid of this man, gets rid of him. They wanted nothing to do with him and the UFC welcomes him with open arms. So what does that tell fighters who in the future could potentially be committing all sorts of abuses? It tells them that the UFC doesn't care. It's that simple. I was going to say, I think this is also the case with, and I, I want to talk about, Fedor Emelianenko in particular, but mm -hmm. I believe his brother yes. has a, a very dark history. Absolutely. No, his brother has an extremely dark history. As a matter of fact, his brother was involved in ki in kidnap. It was it was uh, framed as kidnapping in and uh, he was charged with kidnapping in Russia for this. But what he did, he had take he had withheld the passport of I believe the person who was cleaning his house, and that he had raped this person as well, sexually abused this person, and uh, eventually was charged and thrown in jail for what was supposed to be a five year sentence. Already a very very light sentence and i think he was let out of prison within the first year and a half of his sentence the rest of it was it goes to show you again that in, in in a country like russia you can get away with something like this especially if you're a famous athlete unfortunately it's not only the behavior that's portrayed by by the actual athletes themselves but when they don't face consequences it only encourages others to go forward with this again in the future and that's really the problem. You've got this perpetual cycle of violence being committed, whether in the sport or outside of the sport. And the regulators and the people who are supposed to be overseeing this, the watchdogs of the sport or of the country, really, when we're talking about Russia and, and its federal crimes here, when they can't handle this problem, they can't handle this correctly. And they don't actually, and fighters don't actually face consequences for their actions. Well, we're only going to see this stuff get repeated time and time again. So I, I had mentioned Fedor. And I, I have to be honest, mm -hmm. the reason I got back into MMA was seeing Fedor Emelianenko. I was immediately wowed. But I mm -hmm. think he has taken pictures with uh, Putin and, and, and been close to Putin as well, unless I'm incorrect on that. What, so this may be a letdown for me because I've always been a Fedor fan. But what's his, his sort of story when it comes to a lot of this uh, intersection between MMA and politics? When, when, when Fedor was at his height, uh, the height of his popularity was at around the time when one of Putin's re-election campaigns was occurring. He actually utilized Fedor Emelianenko during the re-election campaign, a very typical Putin strategy where he takes the most popular athlete 
the Russian athletes of the day and utilizes them as part of his sort of his re-election campaigns. Because, of course, you know, the average Russian is going to be well aware of these celebrities. They love the celebrities. And if the celebrity tells you I am in favor of this man or Putin is a great leader, well, as I mentioned earlier, they're more than likely to believe this sort of propaganda instantly. Fedor was the same thing. Fedor had always given this image of this, you know, this pious, uh, good Christian Russian and people like really had no emperor. reason. Exactly. Right. People had no reason to uh, to argue that narrative. So when he actually comes out and goes and campaigns for Putin, well, that's a boon for someone like Putin. Absolutely. It's a huge uh, it's a huge win. And that's exactly what he did. Unfortunately, he, he hasn't been utilized in any of the recent campaigns. More recently, Putin has used much more popular Russian athletes right now, like uh, uh, Ovechkin, for instance, who plays in the who plays in the NHL. Uh, I can't remember what team he does. I'm not really uh, I'm not really a hockey guy at all, but I think it was the Rangers or something like that. But uh, he's in uh, he, he plays he plays uh, he plays he plays hockey and he's a significant uh, Russian Russian celebrity right now. Ovechkin had started this thing called Putin team where a lot of these celebrities and athletes joined in to campaign for Putin together. And of course, now Ovechkin is one of those athletes who's facing a lot of questions as the war wages on right now about about Putin and his support for Putin. And I mean, all these athletes should face consequences at the very least should be criticized and scrutinized for their association with Putin. At the end of the day, you are part of the problem. We cannot ignore that. And we cannot take this on this concept of, well, poor athlete, they had no choice whatsoever. Well, what about the poor citizens who are suffering now? I mean, athletes are already rich and wealthy enough to get rid of, get, get away with absolutely everything. They're treated as if they are a whole class on of uh, to themselves, really. The, and we are all second-class citizens to these athletes. The idea that I'm supposed to sympathize or feel sorry for an athlete is absolutely never going to happen. Never going to happen. So when it comes to... I, I'm assuming there will be fans of these fighters listening to the show how, <laughs> i mean how how do you sort of talk to people that are fans of these figures this i mean it, I, I think it's cognitive dissonance for some people right like Absolutely. they're they're like okay i really like fedor i respect him as a fighter uh but there's this there's this other side that you you sort of have to square with that uh what do you make of all that and and do you think there's people that sort of deal with that and other people who just ignore it what, what's your take I think a lot of people engage in what I like to call willful ignorance. And again, it's it's this whole idea of whatever way they can alleviate their own guilt, whether they say things like, oh, well, you know, it, it can't be the athlete's fault. They probably have no choice or they probably didn't know any better. Whatever you can do to convince yourself that your athlete's actually not as bad as they're made out to seem that they are. So that's a lot of what fans unfortunately engage in. And here's the thing, really. I have never been the person who promote, who's who's out here telling you to boycott sports or to boycott these athletes. That's just not the way I approach. That's not how I view my job. My job here is to raise awareness and to educate the audiences that read my work. That's really the only role that I take on over here. So I'm not here telling you, well, you can't watch the UFC anymore. What I am asking of fans is well, to you're, be aware. You're not even taking away from... Like, I, I don't think you're taking away from Fedor as an athlete. Exactly. If you're criticizing him. Yeah, go on, though. Thank you. That, that's what I'm trying to say. It's it's at the end of the day, their athletic achievements and their successes is is not the point, is not what I'm trying to counter or, 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 or look at here. But it's the same narrative as really with anything. You can you can still appreciate a fighter's achievements while at the same time being able to criticize the decisions that they've taken 
and how they have utilized their platforms because they are part of the problem. And to ignore that or to pretend they aren't, well, then you are also engaging in that propaganda. And people should be aware that it doesn't stop at the athlete. How you react to the athlete is part of the problem here. That's part of sports washing. When athletes, I'll give you a great example of this. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been engaging in, in, in plenty of sports washing lately, including purchasing uh, Newcastle Newcastle United, the football team in the Premier League right now. When they purchase Newcastle United, they're also purchasing the legions and of fans that come with Newcastle United. Newcastle United is a team that's not doing so well and needed that cash injection and influx of money that's coming from Saudi Arabia to elevate them to the status of the clubs that are already successful, like Manchester City, Manchester United, etc., 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 Chelsea, and whatnot. But if those fans do not criticize the Saudi government and what's happening there, then they are now part of that propaganda machine because you have now inherited these millions of fans of this club who are going to be loyal to you. And that's terrifying to think about. It's funny because I was just interviewing an expert on the crisis in Yemen, um, Dr. Mm-hmm. Anel Shaleen, and she was saying the same thing. She had mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia getting involved in, in football. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think of, uh, since we mentioned pro wrestling, now they're really tight with uh, the, the WWE wrestling promotion. They have their big event there every year and they give tons of money. It's really Vince upsetting. It's, yeah, been, and it's it, been so upsetting. Well, it's 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 wild because people don't realize there is sort of a, a political agenda to that in a way, because, you know, it gets people to focus on, oh, see, we're we're liberalizing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you're you're still not I, I would say Saudi Arabia isn't very liberal, uh, but At you're all. also, you know, committing uh, heinous acts in Yemen. And, and it gets people not to look at that. Absolutely. And it, it makes people feel good because because Vince McMahon has come out himself in an interview, I think an interview quite recently, recently, actually with Pat McAfee saying that, well, we are engaging in uh, in helping uh, liberalize and make this country a bit more progressive. We're doing our part to, you know, have women compete there and therefore it will be better off for all women. This makes WWE fans feel really good about themselves. Look at us watching a product that's going to help change the world and change Saudi Arabia. The truth is none of that is true. Since since the WWE has started going to Saudi Arabia, there have been no new uh, progressive entities that come out of Saudi Arabia. The war with Yemen has continued to wait, like rage on, unfortunately, with a massive humanitarian crisis that's one of the worst in the world right now. Women are still treated horrifically in Saudi Arabia, despite the fact that the WWE has managed to have a few of its stars, you know, compete there. And they, they see this as like a historic incident, but it's not, unfortunately. It's more distractions. That's all it really is. And at the end of the day, it's also a bit of this white savior complex that we're seeing, this idea that people from the West and from America are going to come in and they're going to modernize this country. That's not true. Saudi Arabia just beheaded 81 people in a single day just a few weeks ago. Good luck thinking that the WWE or any football match is going to change how they operate. It's never going to happen. So there were just two more things I wanted to cover here briefly. Uh, first, I and I, I I don't know if if you have any thoughts on this or that you've ever written on it, but I've talked to some people in the MMA world that are interested in the possibility of of uh, the MMA fighters unionizing. Mm-hmm. Do you have any any thoughts on on that particular issue? Because I mean, I, I think a lot of them do get exploited, especially when they're not like the 
you know, big star. They're not the Ronda Rousey or the, mm-hmm. you know, Conor McGregor. Do you think mm-hmm. there's uh, an argument to be made for unionizing with those fighters? Oh, absolutely. There's uh, First of all, I'm extremely pro-union. I think all athletes should be unionizing. I think that the way the UFC is pushing for this sort of individualization of fighters and that you should only be fighting for yourself and for your money is extremely damaging all the way around. And yes, you make an excellent point about exploitation. I think I can bring that back to, uh, to, the, to everything we've been discussing. When you really think about all the UFC athletes who have gone and visited Ramzan Kadyrov, the vast majority of them got paid more to visit Kadyrov than they ever going to get paid to fight had these athletes been millionaires or been let's just say this way had they been paid what they deserve to have been paid by the UFC in the first place I would at least make the argument that theoretically they could have been able to say no they would have been much more likely to say no to those offers from Kadyrov because it wasn't life-changing money at that point unfortunately there's always going to be exceptions to that like Floyd Mayweather who is already one of the filthy richest like people on the planet and he still goes and visits Ramzan Kadyrov anyway that just tells you he's an awful human being no matter what but that doesn't apply to all UFC fighters a lot of them if you're offered half a million dollars to go meet with a Chechen dictator and hang out with him for a couple of days who for a lot of them are not going to say no to that that's life-changing money they've got families to look after that falls on the UFC Had the UFC been better to its athletes, a lot less of this would have been happening. And I've said this before in interviews before, and I stand by it, that the UFC is at fault for a lot of this propaganda that's that's occurring right now. And the last thing I wanted to cover was the the reaction of fighters um, from all across the, the different aisles to the invasion of Ukraine by Putin, because it seems like uh, there's fighters that are supportive of Putin. It seems like there's other fighters that are against it. And it even seems like I think you've uh, spoken about this on Twitter. There's even fighters that are using this to support what I would say are, you know, really noxious forms of Ukrainian ultranationalism. Now, that I'm not attacking Ukraine when I say that, because mm-hmm. I think the invasion is uh, completely, you know, it's it's morally indefensible. But, but I think there's all kinds of uh, nationalist elements that are sort of using this for their own gain. Oh, there's no doubt about it. I have seen uh, Russian fighters posting videos. So there's a Russian fighter called Alexander Shlamenko, and he used to be a champion for Bellator, which is an American organization. He was a champion for them years ago. Uh, so I think 2015, 2016, something along that, along those lines. He posted this proper, this complete propaganda video with his whole fight team in Russia, where they were talking about, uh, it, it had obviously the, the Z slogan and all these pro-war uh, Russian slogans and propaganda. And a lot of it was, uh, chanting things like i am i am armenian i am russian i am azerbaijani i am russian i am uh, orenburg i am russian and this whole idea that all of us from all these different places we are all russia and of course what was the point of that but to say that ukraine likes to think that it's independent but it's actually russia that's what they're trying to say there's this ethno nationalism involved in a lot of what they're promoting right now and they're using their status as fighters to to really push this narrative as well so unfortunately you've got that side on the pro putin side and then you've got the side that's of course promoting uh, ukraine you've got all these all these uh, uh images of support going to to you know a lot of the ukrainian boxers that are currently fighting 
uh, in the trenches in Ukraine, right? Like you've got a lot of that. Uh, uh, you've got Lumachenko is down there. You've got Usak is down there. Like there's a, there's a few of them. So you've got people on all sides. And I think at the end of the day, what we're going to see is people are going to use things like this war to push whatever political agenda they already have. So if you're on the side of Putin, you're going to find a way to push that narrative. If you're on the side of Ukraine, you're going to find a way to push that narrative. If you think that there's a way that this can tie back to American politics, you're going to push that narrative as well. Fighters are no different, unfortunately. Like we've seen this happen. A great example was, you know, Bryce Mitchell, who fights for the UFC. He has some awful views in general about QAnon and conspiracy mentalities and stuff like that about, you know, uh, thinking that all school shootings are false flag operations. Like really, this is a one of the most conspiracy-minded individuals in the UFC, but he's also an extremely talented featherweight who is probably going to do big things in terms of what he can do in the division. He, during one of the UFC press conferences recently, basically said, I don't really care what's happening over there because you know I don't want us involved. I don't think that me from Arkansas should be involved in a war in, in Ukraine. I don't think we should be using any sort of military, American military operations to be involved in Ukraine. I think that if they come and fight in Arkansas, that's when I'm going to pick up my gun and fight. And he got a lot of support for that. He ended up appearing on Tucker Carlson's show, etc. And it's to push this idea that, hey, Joe Biden, don't get involved in, uh, in Ukraine. Don't get involved in Ukraine. So you'll, they're able to spin the slightest thing that a fighter says and take it and make it into a whole big political concept. At the end of the day, what we're seeing is that the UFC has gone from the days of human cockfighting to the fact that now a fighter can say something at a press conference and it becomes politically relevant. On the next day, he'll be on Fox News pushing that propaganda even further. So really, 20 years has really changed a lot. And I guess what I, what I was trying to touch upon earlier, because I, I think I've seen you tweet about it, uh, are fighters that may be supportive of the Azov Battalion. And again, I'm not bringing up Azov of in the way that like the, the pro-Putin crowd is, is bringing it up to say, oh, all Ukrainians are, are neo-Nazis. I just, I, I want to talk about, are, are there fighters that are supportive of this sort of Azov Battalion, which for people that don't know, it, it was a paramilitary in Ukraine that was founded by neo-Nazis, essentially. Yes, and again, so just just to, just to you know uh, to clarify this point even further is that yes, the Azovs exist. I have reported about them, you know, over the over the years, just because they actually ran a fight club for a few years in Ukraine as well. So it was part of me covering a lot of the you know the, the rise of these far right fight clubs. But again, the Azov the Azov regiment is very is very insignificant in Ukraine at the moment. I've been keeping an eye on them for the most part. Whatever remains of these you know few hundred figures does not is not reflective of ukraine of ukraine's diversity of ukraine's politics in general but to ignore that they exist or to ignore that people have utilized them in the past would would be a disservice as well at the end of the day so you're right yes i have not necessarily seen any significant fighters uh, talking about them recently but i have seen for instance uh there used to be the one of the godfathers of like neo-Nazi mixed martial arts, and we didn't really get into this topic in general, but is a man called Denis Nikitin, and he's a Russian uh, ultra-nationalist who founded a mixed martial arts clothing brand called White Rex. And for a few years, he was... I'm just surprised. I, I did not... I have not heard this term before, neo-Nazi mixed martial art. You're going to have to explain this a little bit. 
Well, that, it, it, it really is what, it, what, I, what I just said is the fact that this man founded a clothing brand, which ended up becoming a fight league thereafter. And all the sort of the symbolism involved with it was all neo-Nazi slogans, really. He was pushing the neo-Nazi ideology through mixed martial arts, through the clothing that he was selling and in the fights that he was hosting. He was only hosting fights between white supremacists and stuff like that. So he was really trying to create this network of white supremacists that is rooted in fight culture. And so these people exist at the end of the day. And he's been one of the people who's still talking about the Azov Battalion right now. But in terms of notable MMA fighters, I have not necessarily seen that right now, which goes to show you how irrelevant and insignificant the group has become since this war began. I mean, the Azov's heyday really was during the, the separatist war between Russia and Ukraine in, the, in Donbass during 2014. That's really when they came to be. And they rose, they rose to oppose uh, Russian separatists. So at the end of the day, even their existence is owed to the fact that Russia was the aggressive state at the end of the day. And this does not even bring up all the fact that there are far more neo-Nazis in Russia than there are in Ukraine, including the ones on the Russian side fighting in Ukraine right now. So it's important just to note all those different things when we talk about the Azovs as well. Yeah, and, and as a full disclosure, the reason I've brought it up is, uh, I mean, I have a stake in it because... Um, I, I have some Ukrainian heritage. So mm -hmm. to me, you know, when people say, oh, Stepan Bandera was just a patriot, I'm like, OK, that's that's not my understanding as yeah. someone with a Ukrainian background. But it's it's good to know that it seems like that influence isn't really there as much or that it's waned. Well, uh, you know, we can we can maybe have this discussion again post-war and see what happens thereafter, because the trauma of war and the things that Ukraine has gone through might lead to some new form of ultranationalism, and that will be very upsetting to see. But at the end of the day, that will be a whole different thing outside of Azov, I think. We have seen them fail politically, and if anything, they're going to continue to get wiped out more and more during this war, whatever small regiment remains in the first place. So we've talked uh, for the past hour about a lot of, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I guess the dark side of MMA. Are there any fighters that stand out to you that may be the opposites of, say, a Conor McGregor um, or any of these other fighters that we've talked about in maybe a, a less than flattering light? Uh, is there anyone that, you know, you, you talked about how uh, some people see these fighters as role models? You know, they may see a McGregor as a role model. Are there any fighters that could be uh, better role models uh, in your view? Yes, absolutely. There are fighters like Leslie Smith, for instance, who went out of her way to try and, and found an MMA uh, association for fighters, like a union, basically. She tried to go out and she tried to start Project Spearhead, basically. And through her activism with Project Spearhead, the UFC opted basically not to renew her contract and to pay her out of her contract. And basically, they wanted nothing to do with it's union busting at the end of the day is what they really went and tried to do there. And what bothers me is, is the fact that Leslie Smith is not mentioned enough, really, because she has gone out of her way. First of all, we're talking about a very, very progressive uh, fighter, somebody who is extremely well-educated, well-spoken, and had the interests of other fighters and put her own career at stake for other fighters. We need more people like Leslie, like Leslie Smith. We absolutely do. A, a, a women's pioneer in Julie Kedzie, for instance, is another phenomenal fighter that I that I would be remiss not to mention. She has retired now but this is a fighter who remains active on twitter talking about the importance of of uh, not uh, uh, like basically continues to reference you know the issues with you know conservatism in, in, in mixed martial arts and the far right in mixed martial arts uh 
and has also, you know, made made a phenomenal post-fight career she, you know she's she's a professor now as well she 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 taught, she uh, is educated in uh, english literature she's got her degree she's writing like we're talking it's lovely to see fighters emerging from their careers and being able to find other careers thereafter and other things that they're successful in that almost have nothing to do with fighting and aren't exactly what you're expecting of this you know meathead sports sort of mentality so really fighters like that are fighters i'll always happily promote and there's probably plenty of other ones but off the top of my head those are the two that I, I, I always think about, truly. Is, is there sort of a divide maybe between the male and the female fighters? Uh, because I know you just mentioned two female fighters. It's so. true, I did. I, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm sure there are male fighters and I'm sure we're going to finish this and people are going to send me a list of of male fighters that I've forgotten to, 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 to mention right now. But uh, And I'm so sorry I have forgotten. But no, there are absolutely male fighters as well that, uh, that are worth noting. Absolutely. So... In closing, what do you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation we've been having uh, for the past hour or so? And I'm, I'm very grateful you went a few minutes over with me, but what do you hope uh, listeners get out of this? And what do you hope that they, uh, if there's anything you would want to say uh, to clear up any misperceptions? Because I think people are going to think, uh, oh, this just sounds like an attack on MMA. And I don't think that's what you're doing at all. See, I, I get that criticism a lot that I must hate the sport and that's why I do this basically or that I hate the fighters or I've gotten all sorts of random comments despite me being Muslim of a Muslim background, get, being called like saying that people saying that I'm Islamophobic, etc. At the end of the day, I believe that if you love something or that you care about something, you're going to be willing to criticize it. It's the reason I don't understand nationalism for the most part, because people's patriotism means that they sort of ignore the issues with, a, with, the, with whatever they're promoting. The truth is, the more you criticize it, the better something becomes. So that's the way I view sports. Not, not to interrupt, but you obviously don't hold the sort of John McCain view that these are just <laughs> human cockfighters. You view them as, I mean, I think you credit them for yeah, being absolutely. great athletes. Absolutely. They are absolutely great athletes. But if we do not criticize the issues with the sport, those issues continue to fester. It's the same as uh, an illness that if you don't deal with, deal with it, if you don't get the medicine that deals with it, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse until it eats you alive. And that's really the case here. So if people don't learn to you know, open their eyes, I hope that at the very least today, I've been able to lift the veil for some people and show them that the intersection of sports and politics can be found in absolutely every sport. I'm talking from you know, chess onwards, you know, like you're going to find it everywhere you look, if you look hard enough. And it's important that you do. And I'm not asking people to boycott things. I'm asking you to be aware. I'm asking you to understand the, the, the power of sanctions. You know, I'm asking you to focus on pressuring uh, entities. If you love your sports, you'll be willing to ask questions. Push journalists to ask questions at press conferences because a lot of journalists are just terrified of, of losing their gigs. That's why they don't ask questions. We didn't even get into the fact that I think journalists are part of the problem as well, because for the most part, there's very few journalists doing what I'm doing, at least in the sports of mixed martial arts, and actually taking questions to the UFC. If you're not going so to, so you think that's UFC, by design? Of course, it is. The UFC has created a system where uh, of access and of fear and intimidation, where if you start opposing the UFC or asking questions that they're not happy about, they're just going to take away your access. But at the end of the day, if enough journalists ask those questions, they can't take away the access of everybody. 
They can't do that. But journalists are now willing to self-censor themselves. And that self-censorship is so damaging to the sport and it's so damaging to what we're doing. At the end of the day, activism is important. That's why human rights organizations do that. But really, when it comes to sports fans and it comes to people listening, I just hope that you're empathetic and that you understand what's going on around you and that you're not willing to engage in willful ignorance. That's really all I can ask for right now. Be aware, be empathetic, do not be ignorant. Well, thank you again, Kareem Zidane, for coming on Parallax Views. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kareem Zidane. Next up, we will be speaking with David Zirin, a journalist who has been covering the intersection of sports and politics broadly for the past around 20 or so years. In this conversation, we'll be discussing his latest book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, as well as how he got involved in examining issues related to sports and politics and much, much more. So with that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with David Zirin. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for uh, quite some time now. Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation, and I would say the most accomplished American political sports writer in the United States, not not to stroke the ego too much there, and author of The Kaepernick Effect, along with uh, a multitude of other books, including the John Carlos story, A People's History of Sports in the United States, and uh, many, many more, including uh, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing, a book that I'm a fan of. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. And, and trust me, it's like when, when you say compliments, it makes me want to hide under my bed and build a fort, not I don't, not feel stroked, as it were. So <laughs> just to be clear about that. So. Just to uh, start out here, uh, this topic of sports and politics has become, uh, I think, more popular for a lot of people and more people are thinking about it now. But you've been doing this for a long time. So the question I have for you is, how did you become interested in the intersection between sports and politics from a progressive perspective? Yeah, yeah. I've been doing this uh, almost 20 years. This is my, my, my 19th year doing this. Um, and it has become something of a of a fashion in recent years. And we can talk about why and why that cultural shift has happened, if you like. Um, but for me, it, it happened very organically. I mean, I was a very political person and I was also really into sports and never the twain met. And that changed for me very much when I was in college, when a basketball player named Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf made the decision that he wasn't going to come out for the national anthem before games. And the, the, the fit just hit the shan when he did that and people were losing their minds and he just converted to Islam. So there was a ton of anti-Islamic bigotry in the response. And I'll never forget, I was watching ESPN speak about it. And one of the talking heads said, well, Raouf must see himself in the tradition of these activist athletes like Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Tommy Smith, John Carlos. And for me, it was like my mind was blown because I was so into sports. I had memorized every statistic, all of that. But 
this idea that there was this other tradition that hadn't been taught to me that I didn't know existed made me just very curious. And so I started reading a lot of history of sports. And the more I learned, the more I started to feel like, you know what, we can apply this today, especially when I would read old political columns about sports from like the 1930s that were in the black press or uh, were written by Lester Rodney, the sports editor of the Communist Party's newspaper, The Daily Worker. Yes, they had a sports editor. Um, and I would read this stuff and think, you know, why isn't there sports writing like this today? Like sports writing that uses sports as a lens to speak about political issues. And right at the time when I was thinking all this, you did start to see those first years of the internet blogosphere kind of open up and different kinds of writing reaching the masses, something we, I think, so take for granted now, like how new that was to see just, you know, I, I'm going to write a column, but it doesn't have to be 700 words. You know, if I want, it can be 2000 words. If I want, it can be 250 words. It can be whatever the hell I want it to be. And that, that kind of anarchic freedom sort of freed me up to say, I'm going to do this. So I started getting jobs at newspapers back when that was still a thing. I didn't go to journalism school. I learned everything by working at newspapers. And one of the things that I always asked for when I worked somewhere was, hey, can I get a little square in the sports page to do my little sports and politics thing? And that's how it started. And that's why I wanted to do it so bad. So it's interesting. You mentioned uh, that, you know, things have changed a little bit where people are talking more about sports and politics in 2013. You wrote a book for the new press called Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down. And I believe when that initially came out, some people were saying, oh, D Dave's uh, trying to mix sports and politics and, you know, he's not going to be right about this. But I, I think time has proven uh, that you were a bit uh, prophetic in that regard. Could you speak a little to that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like right when I was putting that book, to, I was seeing all these things in sports that were kind of building up in the lead up to writing that book. Like you'd had the, uh, the Egyptian revolution, for example. And I saw some articles online about how the soccer clubs in Egypt were performing like this big role in the taking of Tahir Square and the securing of Tahir Square. And I was like, well, that's different. You don't think of soccer clubs taking part in what, what I perceived at the time to be a progressive revolution against a US backed aut autocrat. Uh, and similarly, you started to see little things like the Phoenix Suns go on the court and wear shirts that said Los Suns as a way to oppose the anti-immigrant legislation that at the time was being pushed by the Arizona governor and the law SB 1070. And then right when I was putting the book to bed, I had no idea this would be the major pivot of, I think, the last 10 years. But as I was putting that book to bed, uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered and LeBron James and Dwayne Wade organized the Miami Heat to all pose wearing hoodies, black players, white players. And that image of them wearing hoodies really became like the first viral political sports photo of the social media age. And I think that's what really was the thing that like I, I was really writing about a dam that was close to bursting. And when that photo came out and the influence it had and the presence of LeBron James, the athlete in the world, deciding that he was going to be a political athlete and take a political stand. I mean, that to me is what really caused the dam to break. So then there's a lot of people that will say things like, uh, 
oh, keep the politics out of my sports, uh, you know, that, that sort of line. And I think we especially heard that um, after the nailing protests with Colin Kaepernick. What do you think people get fundamentally wrong when they say, uh, keep politics out of my sports? Because I, I think they're pretty inseparable in some ways. Yeah, what they're getting wrong is it's sort of like saying, keep your cocoa beans out of my chocolate. It's like you can't really it's baked into the cake, as it were, of sports. I think what they get wrong is suffering from that deficit of historical knowledge about the origins of organized sports in the United States, because from the very beginning, sports operated around this myth of inclusion, but reality of exclusion. So from the very beginning of sports in the, in the 1800s, of organized sports, I should say, after the Civil War, 1800s, uh, sports is, becomes a big business. And the people who run it, they, 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 call, they yell out to the world, like this new thing, organized sports, this is like America. It's, you know, anybody can make it if they try hard enough. So it was filled with this mythology of inclusion, of meritocracy. If you're good enough, you're going to play. But the reality was one of exclusion, if you will. Real, real quick, if I could, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people say that's the last bastion of meritocracy uh, sports. Uh, but I, yeah. I, go on. No, I know people people do say that. And it's it's sort of like, really? Is that is that even true? And I don't think it's true today. And I certainly don't think it was true. It was much less true even in the 1800s when women were entirely excluded from organized sports and black people and brown people were told, find your own leagues, but you're not gonna play in our white only leagues. And so you had the reality of exclusion. So from the very beginning, this myth of inclusion, reality of exclusion, there's always been a political battle in sports for people to be able to have a voice and for people to be able to even play. And so that's always made it a political battleground, always. From the days when W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington were having arguments about Jack Johnson and whether it was good or bad that there was finally a black heavyweight champion uh, in boxing in the United States. They had very differing views about that. Um, but also the other thing I would, so I would say to the folks first thing, like, well, it's baked into the cake of sports. It's always been political. You're just learning that for the first time. The, the, the other thing that I would say to folks is I would say, well, is it that sports and politics shouldn't mix or is it that sports and a certain kind of politics shouldn't mix? Because when it comes to the politics of militarism, when it comes to the politics of hyper-nationalism, certainly when it comes to commercialism, those politics are only all too welcome in sports. It's only when athletes, particularly athletes from marginalized communities attempt to use the platform of sports, the platform of sports to be heard. It's only then where you get that crackdown of people saying, wait a minute, sports and politics, they should not mix. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, there's an MMA writer I've been following uh, by the name of, I believe it's uh, Kareem Zidane who writes about the intersection between oh, he's great. MMA and, and politics. And he was uh tweeting today about, uh, you know, sort of right-wing politicians like Ted Cruz uh, trying to use uh, the popularity of UFC figures like Chuck Liddell mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, garner a younger audience uh, when it comes to uh, promoting his politics. So I don't see people complain about that as much. What people seem to complain about 
is uh, when these athletes start supporting uh, left wing or progressive causes. Exactly. And it's, it's resistance politics that people don't want to see in sports because when it's right wing politics, I mean, their hypocrisy is so brazen. It's ridiculous. Like when Colin Kaepernick was protesting, they were saying, get him out of the sport, fire him. Donald Trump was even saying he should leave the country um, to, to rapture his cheers. Uh, but on the flip side, you know, the, there's a basketball player named Enos, formerly known as Enos Cantor, now known as Enos Freedom. He's a, not a good player. He's a, a darling of the right wing. An absolute darling has appeared on Tucker Carlson. And now they're talking about him as if he's he's our Kaepernick because he's being blackballed because he's dared stand up to China and the NBA's business in China. And it's such transparent horseshit. It's like when it's when it's their athlete, they're only too happy to celebrate them. And when it's not, they're only too happily to try to ruin their happy to try to ruin their lives. Um, my view is not, you know, I love it when athletes who I agree with speak, but people who say things I don't agree with need to shut up and play. My view is that, you know, athletes are human beings, they're citizens. If they have something to say, they should be able to say it. And if they say something horrifically right wing, well, then it's not our role to sort of patronizingly clap and say, oh, it's so good that you're talking. You're an athlete. It's our job to actually respond and have something to say about that and join the debate. To me, that's a much healthier outlook than either saying, you know, shut up and dribble or saying we only love athletes when they promote, you know, crypto fascism. Yeah, the. The shut up and dribble line I've always found uh, interesting because to me it, it smacks of a sort of um, it smacks of racism. Like, oh, you're just here to entertain me. Uh, and I think about it, especially in terms of um, how there's so many black athletes in the NBA. That shut up and dribble line is, uh, you know, very coded speak in my view. Yeah. And to me, it's a code that a, a fifth grader with a ruler could figure out. I mean, shut up and dribble. It evokes this idea of shut up and dance shut up and entertain. Uh, it's, it's wanting, as the expression goes, all of the rhythm of black culture and none of the blues. Uh, they, you know, the, Maya Angelou once said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, America actually loves black culture. They just don't love black people. And that's what shut up and dribble says to me. It's, he's like, entertain me. I'm Laura Ingram. I'm Fox news. You're here to entertain. You're here to dance. You're here to dribble. But God forbid you try to say something or have an opinion about this world that shapes us all, this, this grotesquely um, unequal society. God forbid you use the platform of sports because you should just be grateful. That's the other racist coded language that you hear all the time is that athletes, particularly black athletes, should just be grateful for the platform that they're being given. They shouldn't use that platform to say anything that makes anybody uncomfortable. And that approach about that they should have gratitude for getting paid for playing a game. What it does is it diminishes their labor. In addition to being baldly racist, it's like, no, they don't play a game for a living They're, They work their ass off for a multi-billion dollar corporation and they're workers and they're in unions. And yes, they get paid ridiculous sums of money, but that's not their fault either. And they perform highly specialized tasks that people value. So, the idea that they should then have nothing to say, especially when you have this tradition in this country, like you can't think of the early years of the civil rights movement without thinking of Jackie Robinson or the 60s without thinking of Muhammad Ali or the women's movement without thinking of Billie Jean King. There's a proud tradition. And when athletes today speak out, they're actually standing on the shoulders of those giants. And so they should let her rip. So I want to get more into the Kaepernick effect 
uh, because it's a very interesting book. But before we do that, I, I think there's also uh, an issue I've seen on the progressive end or, or the left at times uh, that I would say is exemplified in uh, Meryl Streep's comments. I believe it was at the Academy Awards a few years back, uh, where she sort of launched an attack on you know the the people who watch NFL and MMA and and was uh, sort of trying to say that those things uh, are for the right wingers. You know, we we like sort of high and and fancy art. How would you push back on maybe negative attitudes towards sports on the left or progressive end? Because I think a, a lot of leftists see team sports as having sort of a a, a weird nationalistic or mm-hmm. or support for militarism sort of element. But I, I don't think that's the whole picture either. No, I mean, there are a lot of arguments to go after it. I think oftentimes there's there's even a little bit of condescension when I hear left wingers say they don't like sports because, you know, you think about it like what left wingers uh, and I count myself among their ranks, to be clear, what, when, when left wingers speak out against sports, they do it in a way that you would never hear them speak out against other elements. I mean, sports is a very distorted cultural product of capitalism. But all of our cultural products out of capitalism are distorted. I mean, look at the music industry. There's no racism and sexism in the music industry. You know, look at Hollywood, for goodness sakes. I mean, my goodness, we almost had a general strike of workers on Hollywood sets last year. I mean, there, there are more than enough problems there, yet, yet you don't hear that same vitriol from the left towards music or towards movies as you get towards sports. And I think one of the reasons for that is because sports is something masses upon masses of working class people enjoy. So there's a bit of, I think, sometimes some condescension there towards sports. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're on the left, you have to like sports. I mean, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that having an understanding about why sports are appealing to people and understanding that sports could actually be this tremendous connecting point and lens by which people can understand racism, sexism, homophobia, corporatism, capitalism, environmentalism. There's so many ways that you can tell those stories through the lens and through the language of sports that to reject that out of hand to me is very um, short-sighted and it puts up walls where they don't need to be walls. Yes, there are horrible things in the sports world for goodness sakes, but we should challenge sports to change try to reclaim it, not reject it. Also because sports is just a part of what it means to be human in this society. And so, you know, people, that that's one of the things about being a human being is that you play games. And so we're also rejecting a kind of a part of our humanity when we say that we don't want any part of games or play or competition. I mean, this is part of the human condition. It's distorted horribly by capitalism. I'll say that over and over again, but it's still something that we should try to embrace, at least in a way that isn't so condescending as to reject it out of hand. Yeah, and I I have to be honest for my part, I think I was really turned off by a lot of sporting events myself um, in the Bush era when I was growing up because, you know, there there was a lot of military spectacle at sporting events. There's a, a punk musician, Chris Verena, of the band Propagandi that actually wrote a whole song about uh, sort of military spectacles at I was uh, interviewed by them once. Oh yeah, yeah. And, it was a and big he, thrill. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a great band. And uh, Chris actually took a, I think he took his daughter out of a game once, uh, an NHL game, because he didn't like the military spectacle during the war on terror. They were having- yeah, good uh, for him. 
I'm all for that. I'm not saying at all, you know, you got to accept the crap that sports shovels at us because they shovel a lot of crap at us. I'm saying we can challenge it to change and saying try to reclaim it instead of reject it. I, I totally get that. I just was wondering if you could comment on what is the sort of connection between militarism and the way sports are represented uh, by a lot of these national leagues, uh, you know, today and historically? Well, it's deep, again, I'm using this phrase, nationalism and militarism, deeply baked into the cake of sports because organized sports emerge in the 19th century as the United States emerges from the Civil War and begins to project itself as an imperial power, uh, particularly, you know, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and sports, the language of sports was often tied explicitly to these military ventures. Uh, there's some great books about it uh, that Rob Rock wrote a tremendous book. Um, God, I'm blanking on the title, but but it's it's a book about the history of, of the early years of militarism in sports and the ways in which, you know, like like they would people like Albert Spaulding is in Spaulding Sporting Goods said explicitly that with baseball, he was he said that our Marines down in Cuba have, you know, a gun on one shoulder and a baseball bat on the other. You know, and not a baseball bat to crack heads, but a baseball bat to say, you know, here's your new sport. This is what you're going to play. And that's exactly what happened in Cuba. It's like Cuba is a, a baseball uh, mad country in many ways. It's because it was imported as part of the conquering process of the United States, or I should say exported um, by the United States. So sports and war always gone hand in hand. Um, and, and the book I mentioned before, I'm going to look it up because it's so good at spelling that out. But then as you get into the Cold War in this country, sports becomes even more tied to militarism. Like the national anthem only starts getting played at every game in the context of the Cold War and, uh, and at Little League events as well and at the YMCAs. And so this idea that sports are where we're training a generation of Americans, multiple generations of Americans to take on the Soviets that got even baked in even more into the world of sports. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, you immediately have the invasion of Iraq. Whitney Houston sings the national anthem at the Super Bowl. I mean, so we're talking about something that's got its hooks so deep into sports that you would need a much broader uh, set of social movements to ever impact it. Like, for example, in 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, you know, a couple of people, including Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, said he didn't know if he wanted to keep playing the national anthem at Mavericks games because the song, has, as he put it, is divisive because it makes people feel a certain way because of police violence. So all it took in 2020 were the largest protests in the history of the United States. And then people are reassessing even using the anthem whatsoever. So it would take a much broader struggle to impact patriotism in sports, but we've already seen in recent years how that could be possible. And, and real quick, what I was trying to get at earlier was, I, I think that my initial aversion to a lot of sporting events in the War on Terror era, I, I, I look back on it now and I think, well, you know, maybe I was just prejudiced towards sports like a lot of leftists are because, you know, a lot of music concerts at the time also had, you know, weird, almost military recruitment type things going on, mm. uh, military spectacles. So I, I think you're right. We, we should take a, an approach to sports where even if we're not a fan, we understand 
uh, why it sort of brings people together and the struggles that go on in sports. Yeah, that's right. And people should check out. I can't quite find the book that I'm looking for, but I think it's called The Empire Strikes Out. Um, and then another book by Rob Ruck called Race Ball, which is really good at showing how, how deeply this runs in the vein of sports and in the marrow of sports. Folks should check that stuff out because it's not as easy as saying, boo, I don't want militarism in my sports. It actually takes a larger fight against militarism. So it's interesting, your book, The Kaepernick Effect, your latest book, I think people would look at it and say, oh, this is another book or, or another story about Colin Kaepernick, but it actually is not necessarily really so much about Colin Kaepernick as, you know, what as the title puts it, the effect that Kaepernick mm -hmm. had and the stories of people who followed in Kaepernick's footsteps who we may have unfortunately uh, forgotten about. Exactly. Um, it's so funny. Like I tell people it's called the Kaepernick effect, but it's not really about Colin Kaepernick. It's about the effect. Because uh, I think Colin Kaepernick's great gift to the struggle was this language of protest. Like you can take a knee during the national anthem and protest the gap between what this country promises and what it delivers, particularly uh, for brown and black communities. And by taking that knee, you're announcing to the world that you're on the side of resistance to the status quo. That's Colin Kaepernick's great gift, this, the simplicity of that gesture. And what it did was it turned stadiums across this country and arenas across this country and fields across this country uh, into political battlegrounds on this question of racialized police violence. And, and, and not just, not to interrupt you, and not just professional sports organizations. Exactly. Yeah, most of the book is about high school students um, and the reaction to them taking a knee and how it affected you know, their teammates, how it affected their relationship with their coach. And it's the stories of what was sacrificed and what was gained by taking that knee. And that's because that's the, the gift of Colin Kaepernick. That's what he bequeathed to the struggle. Um, but that's what the book was going to be about and was about. But then the summer of 2020 happened. Then you have the police murder of George Floyd. Then you have the largest protests in the history of the United States, literally. And I called the people I'd interviewed in the, for the book. You know, this was before the book went to publication. And I asked them what they were doing and they were all part of the struggle. And that made me realize that while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, one of them runs straight through the playing fields of the United States. And we should recognize that. We should recognize that the playing field really became a sustaining bridge between that time in 2016 when Kaepernick took that knee and the protests in 2020. And the fact that George Floyd was killed by a police officer putting a knee on the back of his neck, I mean, it created a juxtaposition that many demonstrators seized upon of Kaepernick's peaceful knee versus a knee as an instrument of murder. So I, I just want to mention this real quick. I think the book you were talking about earlier is The Empire Strikes Out, how baseball yes. sold U.S. foreign policy and promoted the American way abroad. Uh, just, just putting that out there so people know. Um, the, the next question I had was, and I think it's by Robert Elias, not Robert, Robert. Elias. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's also from the new press. People should check that out. Uh, so it's interesting with regards to the Kaepernick effect, you get into some people that have supported uh, progressive causes and, and causes of social justice that maybe people wouldn't think of 
uh, necessarily like uh, cheerleaders uh, were yeah. involved in the social justice cause. Could you talk about that? Yeah, cheerleaders are, are see, the book, you know, I, I think thousands of young athletes took a knee uh, by my count between 2016 and 2020, and they still are today. I still get emails from people about situations where this is going on. Um, and I think that I, what I tried to do with the book was, you know, I couldn't interview everybody. So I tried to make it as representative as possible of the struggle. So I worked hard to make sure that like the number of football players I spoke to, the number of soccer players, basketball players, that it represented what has been taking place. And cheerleaders have been a big part of the take a knee Black Lives Matter movement. So I interviewed several. Now, why cheerleaders? Well, in talking to the cheerleaders, they gave, I asked them all that question about what is it about being a cheerleader that pushed you to take that knee? And they said, it was really astute, like that being a cheerleader is like being the, the face of a university or the face of a high school. You know, you're, you're there to let people know that, you know, that your school is number one and all of that. Well, what if you're not feeling very cheery? What if you're not feeling that your school is acting in the best interests of justice and, uh, and racial and, and the racial reckoning that's been taking place in this country? What if you feel like they're acting counter to that? Well, you take a knee, especially when the person and the people that you're cheering for aren't taking a knee. In several of the stories I told, the cheerleaders first went to the football players and were like, are you going to do this? And we'll join you. And when the football players said, no, that's, that's too, you know, that, that will raise a shit storm. We don't want to do it because, and frankly, they were correct that it would raise a shit storm. They, they, they went ahead and did it anyway. So a lot of courage among the cheerleaders. Um, and I think a recognition that they are, they are team sport athletes. They're often, I think the fact that they're so often disrespected as not being team sport athletes also uh, leads to an understanding of why they wanted to be out front protesting. I think it's interesting too, because I think both with uh, cheerleaders or, 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 you know, football players that there, there's this idea of, oh, the, these, these guys aren't that smart or these girls aren't that smart. You know, the, the dumb jock stereotype or, or the airheaded cheerleader. Uh, but you've interviewed a lot of these athletes, and they, they seem to uh, have a pretty good understanding of issues like class struggle and, and related yeah. matters. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Well, a lot of them, I mean, it really was the Trayvon Martin case. I mean, for that, like if you're, if I'm interviewing you in 2020 and you're 19, that means you're 11 when Trayvon Martin is killed by George Zimmerman, who's stalked by that racist and killed in Sanford, Florida. And for them, they were old enough to understand that Trayvon Martin was killed for the color of his skin, but they're also young enough to not understand why it had to be that way. And in speaking to them, they, they were really scarred by Trayvon's murder. Uh, and they carried that with them uh, throughout their lives. And when they saw Colin Kaepernick take that knee, it was a lot of times this very instinctual response of he did it, I'm going to do it too. You know, solidarity, this, this world has to change, this country has to change, I'm taking a knee. It was only after they took the knee 
and start getting harassed and threatened and death threats and their families and all of this stuff that they start diving into history and really understanding what they did in this broader historical context. And that's what struggle does. I mean, struggle pushes you to under, learn more history because all of a sudden, you know, th there's this world out there and you want to be able to change it. And history is your greatest weapon to do that. But if you're not part of the struggle, history can seem as dead and lifeless as a fish on the floor. So a lot of them got really into politics after they took that knee. I found that really fascinating because it kind of validates a view that I have of how human beings change. You know, you involve yourself in struggle, it can change you fundamentally. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also add, though, even before, I think, Trayvon Martin, uh, you had athletes that were really aware of uh, how they were being exploited. And I was wondering if you could, I, I know that's not specifically focused on the Kaepernick book, but, you know, you've been writing about this uh, for, you know, a, a good 10, 20 Long years. <laughs> so uh, are there any examples even prior uh, to uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee oh. or the Trayvon Martin incident that you would point to of athletes understanding the issues? Oh, a ton. I mean, if you want, we can go back historically 100 years and go through it by decade. Um, and, you know, in the, in the immediate uh, period before uh, Trayvon's murder and LeBron's response, there, there were there were a lot of athletes who spoke out. There were athletes who spoke out against the war in Iraq. There were athletes who spoke out against sexism, against homophobia. There were gay athletes who came out and I covered all those stories. But as far as breaking through in a mass way, that doesn't really happen until you have the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, because of the direct connection that the movement for Black Lives had with the experience of so many Black athletes. That, that was really the cultural shift. Was there any interviews you had with an athlete where, you know, they, they maybe really blew your mind with like their, their sort of understanding of the issues, any ones that stick out in particular? I mean, it's tough to choose because they all kind of blew my mind <laughs> to relative degrees. And I could tell you stories about some of the high schoolers or some of the college students because they're so amazing. But I got to say, honestly, I mean, I, I interviewed very few pros for the book and that was on purpose. But one of the people I interviewed was Megan Rapino, and Rapino's consciousness and her understanding, I'm speaking to her as the movement uh, to find justice for George Floyd was in full steam. It was it was really uh, bracing. I mean, I remember interviewing Megan Rapino, and she was she was angry and she was righteous and she was uh, historically based in terms of her knowledge and understanding of what was happening. That that one was uh, one of Morty's mind blowers, as it were. Uh, so people should check that one out. That's one of the cool things about the book is like, I want people to read it in order so you can go through high school, college and pro. But if you want to skip around, more power to you. So one thing I've really been interested in recently is uh, college athletes and uh, the question of compensation. And there was a really interesting movie. I think it got, uh, you know, reviews that it didn't deserve. I think it got uh, a, a few uh, lukewarm reviews, but it was a movie called National, National Champions. Champions. And, and I yep. believe your friend uh, Jamel Hill was in it. Mm. Uh, so could you talk about this issue of college athletes and compensation, if you've looked into that at all? Yeah, National Champion got buried 
and I've been writing about this for, for a very long time. Of course, they should be paid. They produce billions of dollars in revenue. Uh, the idea that there isn't money for them or that other sports would be starved is ludicrous. You've got coaches making $10 million a year. Uh, the money is in the system to make sure there's a fair compensation. And of course, it should happen. No question about it. I mean, they are workers for the university. Uh, there are restrictions put on the classes they can take. There are restrictions in terms of their freedom of movement. There are restrictions in terms of their social media. You know, and there should be a wage that's paid for that. Yes, we're seeing some progress with the name, image, and likeness rights that athletes are now allowed to hold, but that's really just not good enough uh, because that only affects like the star athletes. I think every athlete uh, should be um, employees of the university. And the money's there. I mean, my God, national champions breaks it down. But you look at what like conference chairmen make, what the head of the NCAA makes. I mean, we're talking millionaires many times over um, for overseeing what's supposed to be amateur athletics. So we have to recognize the truth in the room that this is not amateur athletics anymore. And uh, an athlete should be compensated. It's horrifying to me because I've seen on sports shows uh, people saying, oh, these kids, they want compensation. Uh, they're not like us they're not doing it for the passion anymore and i'm like simultaneously horrified by that sentiment and also i just want to roll my eyes at it yeah and i think most people do i think that line just isn't going to cut it anymore i mean this is big business we're talking about and no one wants you to work for free if you work for general motors so there's no reason to do so for the ncaa it's like they exist in this weird constitutional carve out and I've argued, you know, that when, when you take away all the, you know, all the arguments about, you know, doing it for the love of the game and sweep away all the confetti, what you're really talking about is the organized theft of black wealth, because that's who would primarily be affected uh, by a change. And that's who primarily gets shafted when it's all said and done. It's interesting, too, because I think when it comes to the owners of uh, these teams, they're very different than the workers. Uh, it, it's almost like there's a, a form of uh, segregation between the owners and the workers. Yeah, to, to say the least, my goodness. It's like they, they, they live in their own rare air. And, you know, an NFL player once told me that NFL really stands for not for long because the average career is just three and a half years. So there's this churn and burn of players while the people who run the league um, and own the franchises, they stay for decades and they reap untold profits off the, the broken bodies of athletes, which is yet another reason to go back to an earlier conversation, why some people are so put off by sports because there's so much hyper exploitation. And again, if I met someone who said that, I would say, I totally get it. I totally get it. I'm not going to ever shame somebody for not liking sports. Sports gives itself enough reasons to not like it. I'm just saying we should be aware of the political messages that sports send because they shape our political lives in ways sometimes we don't even understand. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon here was, uh, you know, with regards to the Kaepernick effect and all your previous work, I think what you're doing is you're creating a, a people's history of sports. To, and that's a title of one of your books, but also a phrase borrowed from the great Howard Zinn. So how can we, you know, create a more people's oriented bottom up history of sports or just a bottom up way of looking at sports going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, uh, support people out there who are writing that kind of work. You know, I'm hardly the only person who does it. So seek out the kind of sports writing that you want to read and support it. Second thing is that if there's an opportunity in your town to organize fans, you should do it. If there's an opportunity to solidarize, you know, I practice solidarity uh, with a sports union, you should do it. Um, you know, different places have different fan cultures and try to seek out the best in those cultures and be a part of it. Um, and by doing so, we can create that truly organic people's history of sports. And since I want to end on a, a positive note here, do you think that the struggles we've seen over, you know, multiple issues when it has come to sports, whether it's uh, the issue of concussions or whether it's the issue of compensation for college athletes. Do you think we're making that progress in regards to these progressive struggles in the sports world? We're definitely making progress in people understanding that these are political issues that demand a left analysis. I mean, look at right now, like the, the unconscionable attack on trans athletes that's taking place in, you know, in states across the country. It's like to be able to have an analysis of that and defend our trans uh, friends and, and neighbors and family members is so important right now. But that takes politics. It takes politics to see through the lies. It takes politics to have an analysis of LGBTQ liberation. And it takes politics to be able to build movements to defend uh, the, the, the rights that we do have. Well, thank you, Dave Zirin, for coming on. Parallax use. How can my listeners keep up with your work and purchase a copy of The Kaepernick Effect? Yeah, I mean, first purchase the book through bookshop.org, not Amazon, because if you do it through Bookshop, you're supporting independent bookstores, uh, which are the lifeblood, I think, of progressive thought in this country. The second thing that uh, you can do is, you know, hit me up on Twitter at Edge of Sports. Um, if there are any questions out of this broadcast that you want to conversate about, um, I'm here. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Kareem Zidane and Dave Zirin. As always, if you support the work here I do at Parallax News, please, please, please consider donating to me monthly on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One, five, ten, fifteen, or a hundred dollars, any amount will help. It is you, the listener, that helps to keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight.
bit no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic community or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.